Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Welcome to Harvard Divinity School. Uh, we're so glad to have you all here. We're in for a real treat this afternoon, uh, I hope, with four wonderful speakers and scholars. Um, just want to ask, is there anyone who is here at HDS for the first time today? Just one or two. Welcome. Well, we're so glad to have you. Well done for finding the Sperry Room. It's always a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle. Um, I, just as a point of information, we are filming today's event. Thank you, Bridget, uh, for being here. Um, it's not streamed live, so if anything awful happens, we can always edit it out. Uh, so feel very free uh, to, to behave uh, within reason, obviously. Um, I want to say a big thank you to uh, Leslie McPherson-Artinian, who has uh, put together so many of the logistics for today. Uh, these things never work without the invisible labor behind the scenes. So big thanks, big thanks to Leslie. And also to uh, Dudley Rose for making all our work possible. So big thank you to Dudley, who I will give a round of applause, and I hope you'll join me. <laughs> So just to lay out our time together, welcome, welcome. Um, to lay out our time together, I will just give a sense of uh, kind of the, the big picture, as it were, um, of some of the major trends which have um, brought these scholars uh, uh, to our attention and, and I think hopefully to an interesting conversation today. Um, and then we'll hear from all four of them uh, on some uh, questions that I'll pose. I'll have a few follow-up questions, and then I'll invite you, brave audience, to talk to one another uh, for just a few moments of uh, things that resonate with you, uh, ideas that you have before we open it up for a, for a conversation. Um, and the most exciting part of the afternoon is the wine and the cheese that will be served um, from four till five uh, in the Center for the Study of World Religions, which is just across the road, and you can follow us in a sort of caravan there. We'd love to have you with us. So, the, the kind of context for this conversation uh, comes in part thanks to a conference that happened here in, I think, 1994, um, and we're very grateful to have Professor David Hall with us, who, uh, yes, also deserves a round of applause for his uh, many decades of scholarship. Uh, and it was called, if I'm not mistaken, Lived Religion, uh, based on the book. And so, uh, lived religion is this kind of idea of, of how, how do people actually live out these things that we study as religions. Um, and Angie and myself as Ministry Innovation Fellows here at Harvard Divinity School um, came into, into our time as students here really with that question of, of looking at people's religious and spiritual practice outside of um, the kind of boxes that we might tick, whether it's Catholic or Reformed Jewish or whatever it is. Um, and so what we're looking at as, as kind of a big picture is these very significant changes in how people are identifying um, in their religious lives, the language they use, uh, perhaps even the practices they do. Um, very recently, just a few weeks ago, uh, the General Social Survey indicated that people who tick none of the above now outnumber Christian evangelicals. Um, so in terms of kind of significant tipping points, uh, this, is, uh, this is one. Mark Chaves at uh, Princeton estimates that 3,500 churches close every year in the United States. So it, it is a really significant moment of decline uh, in some areas of institutional religion, which are reshaping how we are in community and how we make meaning. But 
The story is not a simple one. Uh, there is significant complexity. Uh, uh, our dean here, David Hempton, talks about people braiding their identities and practices together. So whereas perhaps 50, 60 years ago, you would describe yourself simply as, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a United Methodist. Now there is the, uh, the, the kind of mixing uh, and unbundling and rebundling of practices. Um, so of those people who describe themselves as um, kind of none of the above or nothing in particular, um, you know, one in five of them still pray every day. Uh, and two-thirds of them believe in some sort of God or higher power. So that boundary between religious and secular is, as ever, much more complicated. Um, and in fact, of people who list themselves as nothing in particular, only 22% of them say that the reason of being, for being nothing in particular is that they don't believe in God. Um, so again, a much more complex picture uh, that we are in the middle of. Um, in Angie and my work with the, the How We Gather project, where we were looking at kind of secular communities that were doing religious things, whether it was, uh, you know, fitness communities like CrossFit or adult summer camps, um, we often looked at communities that were more likely to, to be coastal, urban, a lot of them were white, uh, majority white, uh, certainly more higher income, higher education. Um, and this, that's often the picture that we see of, of, in the media, certainly, of people who are described as, as nothing in particular or none of the above. Um, and really only about a third of nuns fit into that picture. There's a whole other um, sector of, of, of nuns that uh, are simply unable to participate in congregational life. You know, if you're if you don't have a car, it's hard to get to church on a Sunday morning. If you're working shifts, you don't have the, the, the ability to, to show up at specific times every week and therefore really be part of a, a community in the same way. Um, so there's, there's a whole other picture here of people who are just generally more isolated uh, and alienated um, from society that we should not lose sight of. Uh, at the same time as this massive decrease in affiliation, we're seeing a rise in loneliness. Uh, and you will, I'm sure, be familiar with this by now, but the kind of uh, very striking statistics um, from epidemiologists in the, the field of public health um, is now suggesting that being lonely is more dangerous to your well-being, and in fact, to your, to your survival, uh, than smoking 15 cigarettes a day or being obese. Um, and so loneliness is really a, a killer at this point, um, whether it's through suicide, through addiction, um, uh, we're hearing more and more about these deaths of despair. So there's, there's an urgency to this question of, of community and of connectedness um, as, we, as we see, you know, one in four Americans describe themselves as they never feel like they have people who really understand them, including family members, 25%. So, uh, and, and indeed, uh, when we are not connected to a congregation, there's all sorts of pro-social behaviors that we see decline. <laughs> Uh, the amount of money that we give, the amount of volunteering that we do. Um, so there's, there's a significant kind of social capital loss uh, as, as congregations decline. Um, so we're in, a, we're in an interesting moment. The, the, you know, the app store has never been more full uh, of things like Headspace and Calm. I just downloaded one that gives me nature sounds whenever I need them, which you know, I'm not complaining about. Um, but nonetheless, we're, we're seeing a trend towards isolation and individualism in how we make meaning and how we, how we perhaps live our spirituality and religion. Um, so 
With all that said, let me introduce you to our wonderful panel. Um, starting with Nancy Ammerman. Welcome, Nancy. Nancy is the Professor of Sociology of Religion in the Sociology Department at the College of Arts and Sciences and in the School of Theology at Boston University. She has a PhD from Yale and is a prolific author, author of articles, books, and her, her research has really shaped uh, the field, I would say, for, for a generation. Um, Particularly, I uh, have always uh, loved reading how Nancy explores congregational life. Uh, there's so much insight and wisdom there. So if, if you're leading a congregation or interested in them, definitely read Nancy's work. Um, and there's always a, a, a deep empathy, uh, I feel, in Nancy's work. Uh, for whoever she's learning about or studying, uh, there's never a kind of cold outsider gaze. There's always a, a warmth of understanding. Um, and, uh, and her book, Sacred Stories and Spiritual Tribes, Finding Religion in Everyday Life uh, from Oxford University Press is uh, just a fabulous book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So welcome, Nancy. Thank you. We also have Anna Sun with us. Welcome, Anna. Um, Anna, this year, is a visiting associate professor of women's studies and East Asian religions here at HDS. Um, but when she's not at HDS, she's an associate professor of sociology and Asian studies at Kenyon College and chair of the Department of Sociology there. Um, she's written a wonderful book called Confucianism as a World Religion, Contested Histories and Contempo Contemporary Realities from Princeton, um, which is a, a fabulous exploration of, of Confucianism uh, in a, through a global context. And so um, if you're interested in Confucianism in America, this is a wonderful text to explore as well. Um, and what I found so fascinating, and I'm look, looking forward to hearing today, is how Anna's kind of models and, and scholarship of religion in China really offers some interesting um, analytical tools to understand religion in America as well. Um, so very grateful to have you. Um, we also have Christopher White. Welcome, Chris. Uh, Chris is the professor uh, and chair of religion at Vassar College. Um, and he's not unfamiliar uh, with this very room because he got his PhD in religious studies here at Harvard, um, where he studied uh, with David. Um, he is uh, the author of Other Worlds, Spirituality and the Search for Invisible Dimensions from Harvard University Press. Uh, and is fascinated by exploring kind of a cultural history of ideas that the universe has hidden dimensions, spaces, and worlds. Uh, I told him earlier, it's one of the most uh, pleasant book covers that I've ever seen as well. So if nothing else, if you want to show off, uh, you know, just from your bookshelf, I highly recommend getting Chris's book. Also for its contents, clearly. But, uh, it's it's a, available on Amazon. Oh, there you go, exactly. As they say, download, download on iTunes. Yes. Yeah. From your phone. And finally, we have uh, my dear friend and colleague, Angie Thurston. Um, Angie has her MDiv from HDS and is creating spiritual formation experiences for the 21st century. Um, she is dedicated to connecting the inner life of spirit to the outer life of action uh, and is convinced uh, that we need one another to become who we are meant to be. Um, Angie is the co-author co of How We Gather in Care of Souls, but what I want you to know for this context is that she also used to be a playwright and wrote musicals about garden lawns and adventures on the moon. Um, so it uh, comes with a, with a fascinating history of looking uh, for spirituality in all sorts of different unexpected places, including the arts. So that was a long introduction. Thank you for bearing with me. Um, what I will ask the panel now, and they'll, they'll each uh, uh, speak to these questions in turn, are three questions that we'll spend our afternoon on. First, how is our lived experience of religion and spirituality changing? 
Where are the boundaries of religion being tested and transformed? What counts as religion? And then how will scholars and practitioners define and understand religion in the future as we look forward? So we'll start with Nancy uh, and then turn to Anna after that. And I'm going to do one question at a time? No, you're going to do them all at once. Oh, my goodness. I know. (laughs) A brave new world. And 10 minutes for the whole thing? I'll keep you to time. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. Here we go. So how are things changing? Uh, Fortunately, Casper has already uh, hinted at a lot of what I would uh, want to say. I'm going to make two primary points here. One is about that growth of the, uh, the no preference, the nuns. Um, as that segment of the population grows, part of what we see, of course, is that it becomes more normal to not have a religious preference, and that has real consequences. But I do want to emphasize two caveats around that growth of the non-religious segment of the population. One is uh, one that Casper already hinted at, which is that the people who aren't the well-educated Sunday brunch uh, community, uh, are very different uh, from that well-educated, well-off segment of the uh, no-preference population. So when we think about the people who are disconnected from religious affiliation, we really need to keep in mind that there are very different kinds, different reasons for people being uh, disconnected. One other little interesting caveat about that population and the growth of it is that um, the growth is a little less clear among the, okay, got to get all the qualifiers here, (laughs) married, straight couples with school-age kids. Okay, that segment of the population is still more likely to be affiliated with a religious community than other demographic segments. And at least until fairly recently, almost as likely to be affiliated as that segment of the population was like back in the 1950s. It's just that there aren't very many of them anymore. Uh, So again, our picture of what's going on and what's changing, I think, needs a lot of nuance. Uh, The other thing, other big point I want to make about how things are changing that is really important, I think, and that is that our religious preferences are, in fact, increasingly tied to our politics. Uh, That simply was not uh, the case uh, a generation ago in the same way that it is now, and it's both a a matter of which religious preference and whether religious preference being tied to how we understand ourselves in the American political scene. So, how are the boundaries being tested and transformed? Uh, They're being transformed, at least in part, by the increasing diversity of the American religious scene, uh, both from this growth of the no-preference sector, but also from uh, the way immigration has changed our overall uh, religious landscape. And putting all of that together, one of the things you also see is that we've become increasingly Uh, timid about talking about our religion in public uh, because we're afraid we're going to insult somebody, uh, because we're uh, aware of the degree to which uh, we can't simply assume that the people around us uh, are of the same religious uh, persuasion or not persuasion. Now, again, a caveat that nuance this observation is that 
the majority of the immigrants who have come to the US in the post-1965 immigration are actually Christian. So what's happened mostly is the diversification of Christianity itself, rather than so much a, uh, a diversification of the overall spectrum of religious affiliations. How is it being tested and transformed, how is religion being tested and transformed? I think the other uh, primary point I would want to make here is that it has been transformed by our wholesale appropriation of what I will call a neoliberal emphasis on individual choice. Uh, and that, that emphasis on individual choice when it comes to everything about our religion and our spirituality means that as we uh, disconnect ourselves from religious communities, we're also disconnecting ourselves from, from the kind of potential for critique that is present in those religious traditions and in the power of those gathered communities, something of the social capital question that, uh, that Casper pointed to. So as much as we may have you know, questions and critique to bring to bear about the religious communities and traditions themselves, there are tools within those traditions and communities that we're losing in our disconnecting. That's especially true, as it turns out, for people from within the black church tradition. And I can talk some more about that later if you want to. So how are we going to define and understand religion in the future? Now, I, here I'm going to put on my scholar hat uh, in terms of the how do we study uh, religion. Uh, first of all, I think we are increasingly aware that to really understand religion, we need to expand the range of the kinds of settings in which we're paying attention to religion. That's part of what the lived religion uh, tradition has given us. It's part of what people like Anna have, have brought to us is a, a recognition that, you know, just looking at religion defined the way uh, from within a kind of Western Protestant way of thinking about what religion is, where it's belief and belonging and membership and, and attending church on Sunday morning, uh, that that doesn't give us the kind of full picture we need. And that once we start looking at lots of different settings, we're also going to recognize the degree to which those settings are really different, not just because the cultures and the religious traditions are different in them, but also because the history of how religion is understood and regulated uh, is different in those places. And that, in turn, makes us think differently about our own system. You know, where, how is government and the state involved in uh, our understanding of what's proper and what's not proper, what's permitted and not permitted? And the second thing about studying religion, in addition to expanding the, the settings, is uh, a focus increasingly, I think, on practices. Uh, this is where my own work is at the moment, uh, on really trying to understand religion as a social practice. Um, and looking at those social practices in terms of a, a range of the dimensions of experience that are uh, a part of a, a practice. Uh, I'm naming embodiment, materiality, emotion, 
aesthetics, moral judgment, spirituality, and narrative as the dimensions of lived religious practice that I'm pointing to as ways to sort of orient our study of what people are doing when they do religion. And I think those are perhaps important dimensions not just for scholars of religion, but also for uh, people who are leaders of religious communities, of gatherings of various sorts, who are thinking about you know, what is a practice that has a kind of resonance and staying power. That multidimensional uh, aspect of what's going on, I think, can be useful as a way of thinking about what leaders are up to. How'd I do? Wow. Not only, not only a great scholar, but also great at timing. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> um, Anna, how about you? Same three questions. I will try. I just have to say that it is such a great privilege and honor to be in the same room with Professor Hall and Professor Emmerman, uh, really pioneers in this important field of the study of lived religion. So I'm truly honored, and thank you, Casper and Angie, for making this happen. And I think Chris and I, if I may speak um, for both of us, we're the next generation of scholars taking this approach into um, new fields, new frontiers. So thank you for having um, made this possible for us. And I'm glad to see a couple of students from my seminar this semester. <laughs> <laughs> students in my... And you didn't um, even offer them extra credit? <laughs> <laughs> I should, should have. Required. I, I <laughs> Um, uh, from my women and lived religion class, so, so I'm glad you're here. So let me say first that how much I appreciate Nancy's opening comments, because you're setting the rise of the American nuns in a political context, where sociologists, we have to think contextually, we have to think about society as a whole. So if I were to tell you about religiosity or lived religion in China today, I have to set the political context first. Um, so many of you know the history of contemporary China um, from 1949 to 1976. Those were the years of strict socialist rule in China. After the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, China gradually opened up uh, culturally, socially, economically, and politically to a certain degree. And religion um, really saw a kind of um, revival starting in the 1980s and 90s. And by the year 2000, we are seeing a full-scale revival of ritual life in Chinese society. So many of you here are in your 20s or 30s, and I can just try to imagine a generation in China who are in their 20s. They were born in the 1990s, is that right? I feel very old. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and by, if you were born in the 1990s in China, um, you don't think of religion as something that you have to um, do underground. Uh, you don't have to hide your um, religious activities for the most part. Um, many young people um, um, found um, um, Christian churches um, as a great place to think about religion and spirituality in the 1980s and 90s in urban China especially. 
so although there is still, of course, really um, rigorous religious regulation in China today, what we think of as repression really is, um, is um, targeted. So the so-called evil cult, such as Falun Gong, is very strictly regulated. Um, um, Islam in, uh, in the Xinjiang um, 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 region is strictly uh, monitored and controlled. Um, and of course, Tibetan Buddhism has been under a lot of um, strain as well. But other than those targeted regions and cases, if you look at Chinese population as a whole, um, based on two surveys I have been um, uh, fortunate to be part of, about 75 to 80% of the Chinese conduct rituals regularly in recent years. So in the latest survey about, uh, this was conducted in 2016, about 80% of the Chinese conducted ancestral rituals in the past year. So it is, I think it is safe to say that we are seeing a great revival of ritual life. Neoliberalism has indeed taken hold uh, in China as well. So we're really thinking about China as part of this global religious and political landscape. So I've been thinking about this notion of the Chinese habits of the heart. Mm -hmm. For those of you who have um, read um, Bella and his team's work on the habits of the heart in America, you know he speaks of the four moral languages uh, that are dear to our hearts in American society. Uh, there is um, civic republicanism. There is a biblical language um, of morality. Um, there is a language of expressive individualism, kind of a therapeutic language of the self. And there is the language of essentially neoliberal utilitarian individualism. I think one can uh, model um, on those um, four dimensions and say China has its own moral languages uh, today, moral discourses. So I would say, yes, there's the neoliberal utilitarian individualism as well, and in fact, it is on the rise. And that is partly what people speak of when they speak of the spiritual crisis in China today. So after 1976, the kind of socialist ideology of morality um, has really uh, lost its hold on the Chinese, um, uh, on Chinese society. So very few people believe in communist values uh, anymore. So that's where the vacuum, um, what people speak of as a spiritual vacuum, um, started. And the neoliberal uh, utilitarian individualism isn't, um, a, is not a language of morality or ethical behavior, at least not um, the way it is used in China today. So we also have um, the socialist language of the common good. It is still there, but it is not really um, taken into, um, it is not really something that people um, feel as a natural expression of morality uh, and ethical values. So it is a kind of official discourse of the common good and people pay lip service to it, uh, but not many people follow that uh, in their everyday life. So we have the neoliberal discourse, we have the socialist language of the common good. We also have the Confucian 
ethical um, frame that emphasizes a kind of unity of Confucian virtues, of benevolence, of kindness, of filial piety, of filial love, um, of justice and courage. So that Confucian ethical discourse, um, from my interviews, I can see that uh, it has never gone away, even during the harshest years of the socialist rule. And it is um, very much what people um, want to hold on to today, um, when um, the center no longer holds, when everything seems to be falling apart ethically in China. The last moral discourse is what I call the religious reason to be. So this refers to the kind of religious discourse people refer to, especially the ones who practice, practice rituals from re various religious traditions, be they Confucian or Buddhist or even Taoist. So people speak of this religious reason to be as a way to, um, to give their lives meaning. So this set of moral languages um, I really discovered through my interviews in China. So I've been doing research in China for about 15 years um, at least, really starting from 2000. And I've conducted um, um, many interviews, uh, anthropographic observations. I've, uh, I've seen a lot of um, changes in the past 15 years. So I want to then conclude by speaking of the changes as in the rise of ritual life is also, I think, in some ways connected to the return to an ethical discourse drawing on traditional Chinese cultural sources. Most of it is Confucian, but a lot of this is Buddhist as well. And in fact, um, we, I've also heard a lot of um, Christian discourses uh, in my interviews and, and, and um, Islamic discourses. So I want you to think of China as a place of great cultural and ritual diversity. Um, if I can give you a breakdown in terms of um, um, religious distribution, 80% of the Chinese do ancestral rites, which I call Confucian rites. Um, but about 25% of the Chinese today um, have a religious identity. And I would say about 5% of them are Christians, um, Protestants, and as well as Catholics. 2% also Muslims, um, 15 to 18% Buddhists. But if you think about the Chinese population, 25% is a very small percentage. The majority of the Chinese are the ones who practice ritual life, who make use of and really rely on a religious ethical framework for uh, meaning um, in their everyday life, yet they do not have a religious identity. So now I'm going into the next set of questions about um, um, how we should think about the Chinese case as lived religion. So we really have to um, expand the definition of religion. We have to look beyond uh, the definition of religion as self-avowed identity uh, or self-avowed belief. So for the Chinese who practice uh, rituals, who follow ethical frameworks um, um, related to specific uh, religious traditions, when they don't have a clear religious identity, um, 
we have to be able to say it is not that they're not religious, but we have to expand what we mean by religion or someone living a religious life. So Casper uh, mentioned um, Dean Hampton's uh, phrase, braided. I actually didn't know that. It's really wonderful. I'm, I'm working on an article right now that talks about a new way of thinking about identity, religious identity in China, not as either or, but as and, and. So it has to be a compo composite identity. Um, so the Chinese person is a Confucian, and very often a Buddhist, and sometimes a Confucian and a Christian or a Catholic and a Confucian, or the Confucian Taoist and Buddhist. Um, we were reading this book about a Chinese uh, empress, um, uh, Empress uh, Wu Zetian in the seventh century in our seminar, and she makes use of Confucian, um, um, Buddhist, and Taoist uh, uh, mythologies to construct her own religious identity. It is a long tradition in China not to make those clear distinctions between religions. So instead of saying, are you a Confucian? Are you a Buddhist? Which, let me tell you, people often say to me, what do you mean? That doesn't make sense. That's not how we think about such things. Then if we go beyond those kind of a religion separate from another religion, if we think about religions as ecological system, um, kind of an ecological um, um, interactive um, um, sets of practices, then the kind of Chinese fluid form of religious life really allows us to see better. And I'm thinking this may be used for our case in America today as well. In other words, we may begin by thinking of the Chinese case as an abnormal case, an outlier, an exceptional case. But if you open up our definition of what it means to be religious, then the Chinese case may no longer be that, um, that exceptional. Uh, we may be finding a lot of affinities. And this is why I benefited so much from Professor Emeron's work. Um, and it's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> it's really true, because then we can see, we can, I love how you're using ancestral rights yeah. in your analysis mm -hmm. of religious practice. So we're just talking about yeah. this just, just now, <laughs> because these analytical categories, in fact, are deeply comparative. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Anna. Yes, and, and this is exactly the, the crux, because when we have done interviews with uh, all sorts of communities that might look secular or non-religious in some way, uh, we've learned to talk in slashes. So uh, rather than saying, you know, do you believe in God, uh, asking questions like, well, do you experience the transcendent slash the sacred slash something bigger than yourself? Be because there's this kind of bigger uh, reality that we miss if we just hone in on those categories. So thank you so much. Chris, how about yeah, you? Yeah, okay. Um I don't want to be too subversive, but I'm, just, I'm going to make four points, and I think they Great. speak to your three questions. Great. And then the future of religion in America, I have no idea about. So <laughs> I'm a historian, right? I don't, I don't talk about the future, just the past. Um, the past is hard enough to figure out. So I, I like the ecological set of uh, practices, and I, I guess with my work, I, I would also add um, an ecological set of practices and ways of being and ways of thinking and ways of imagining. Um, I try to think a lot about the imagination and the popular imagination and people's mentalities and what structures people's beliefs and what structures people's ways of thinking. So 
Um, four points I would, I would make about this. One is I think that, you know, how is religion and spirituality changing? I think, the, I think its places and its, its sites are changing. So, um, you know, we're already talking about um, churches for sure, but I think that we need to talk about podcasts. Yes. You know, I think we need to talk about yoga studios and meditation centers and uh, Catholic retreat centers, mm -hmm. meditation retreat centers, Burning Man, mm -hmm. global yes. festival culture. I mean, um, and then something I'm interested in working on right now, which is sort of electronic technologies. How 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 is sort of religion mediated through um, through Star Trek, through Twilight Zone, through Trekkies, through fandom of various types? Right? How do we how do we sort of change our categories and ways of thinking about what religion and spirituality are in order to start thinking about those things in new ways? And I think that. Your work, Nancy, and your work, Anna, really helps. Really helps with that. Um, it's a it's a pleasure to be on this panel. Thank you. Thank you too for um, including me. I'm uh, the only non-sociologist here, but I feel like I'm a historian trying to do contemporary things, and you're a sociologist also interested in the past. So it kind of, kind of works out. So um, so yeah. So I would I, I think we have to think about place maybe in new in new kinds of ways. Um, how do we think? I, I didn't mention book clubs, but um, mm -hmm. boy, whenever I go home to San Francisco Bay Area, it's like all my friends and my parents are in book clubs, mm -hmm. uh, and they're like spiritual book clubs. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to get them to do Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, but um, but they're not like my students. I can't require I can't require the reading <laughs> for that. So so that would be one thing. Another one um, is just that I think we have to think about the ways that. Um, individuals' relationships to religion uh, and to, I guess we would call spiritual groups, is now mediated electronically. Um, how do we think about that, right? And fortunately, there are lots of people who are thinking about that and communication studies and media studies and um, religion and digital culture. So that's something I'm really interested in. My book with the cool cover that, that Casper <laughs> mentioned. <laughs> You've got to read the ideas, too, the ideas. Yeah, um, yeah. It had nothing to do with the cover. Um, my, the end of my book sort of takes up this question of um, you know, electronically mediated religious experiences, what happens when people do seances that are electronically mediated, what happens when religious services get mediated in certain ways. Um, you know, the, the issue of electronic mediation raises all kinds of other issues, like how does it refigure community? How does it refigure identity? Um, what about authenticity, right? Authenticity is a big one. Is a ritual authentic if it's mediated in, in certain kinds of ways? I remember talking about this in my religion and media class, and I had a student in the back of the class raise his, raise his hand, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 the question of authenticity is really important. He said, because my, my grandpa, who's Catholic and lives in Pennsylvania, you know, he, um, he watches mass on TV. You know, he can sit at home. He, he's not able to, to get out anymore. So he sits at home, and he watches mass, but he, he can't do communion unless the consecrated bread and wine is brought in a delivery van from the church. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating example of what can be mediated mm -hmm. and what can't be, what's authentic. It, the, the service seems to be authentic when it's mediated electronically, but the communion wafer is not. So, <laughs> right, the communion wafer, something special something is done with the ritually, yeah. right? So then it, it, sort of, it contains the real presence in a way, right? And for whatever reason, in the Catholic Church, the real presence cannot be mediated electronically. It has to be brought physically. Um, so there's a lot of interesting questions about electronic mediation and whether these rituals are authentic. This also reminds me of American televangelists and televan Pentecostal televangelists around the world who write to televise the, their services and televise healings and even ask you know, viewers to come up and put their hands on the screen uh, when they're at home to get the spirit through the screen. 
And there was even this American televangelist, Tipton, I think his name was, from Texas, who said that, um, that the Holy Spirit was even transmitted through reruns. Mm. <laughs> Which is very cool. Very cool. <laughs> so, so you could put your hand on the screen even if it, even if it wasn't live. So again, like uh, raises these issues of, of mediation, authenticity, and I think this stuff yeah. is super important, right? And when we talk about whether we're talking about religious congregations or spiritual groups, right? They all are mediated, right? I mean, they're all online. They're all of these apps. Um, you know, and it raises these kinds of questions about mediation. So that would be a, um, a second point. Um, okay, and then a uh, third point would be pop culture. I think that pop culture is going to really continue to provide inspiration for people, new sacred narratives. I mentioned earlier Trekkies, but there's all kinds of fan clubs and fandom and cons. Um, you know, I do think that these types of things are coming to replace religious identities, or maybe we could say like reconstruct religious identities or spiritual identities for people. Um, I think it's interesting to keep your eyes on the ball about who, who goes to or who participates in alternatives. Um, you know, why, why, it, why are people leaving religion? Uh, some people, right? Uh, why are people now checking the box that says no religion, right? There, there are reasons for that. There, there's, there's a politics there, there's, right? People don't feel welcomed. Um, people don't like the politics. They don't like the ways that those groups are social, right? Or, or dogmatic, or misogynist, or racist, or, or whatever it is, right? So there, there is a, there's a kind of a politics to those uh, religious changes. And I think that um, you see that, for instance, when you look at um, Trekkies. You know, you, you hear the language of, uh, of not religion, right? Not religion, not religion, not, I'm not this. I was raised this, I'm not this now. And then you hear a kind of embrace of something that's liberating. There's often that language there. It's liberation, liberating. It accepts me as I am. Um, so I think uh, I think pop culture is real important. Harry Potter is, you know, it's my shout out to Casper. But Harry Potter is a new sacred narrative, you know, for so many people, including my kids. <laughs> you know, um, this a great example. I remember explaining to my uh, my daughter's ten now, but she was probably eight when I was talking to her, and I was talking about prayer. Oh, you know, what's prayer? How does that work exactly? You know, and well, it's sort of like, you know, you sit and you, you talk to God and, and, you know, God listens and you can say anything you want and, you know, God is really close to you. And, and she said, ah, oh, okay, okay. So she said, she says, okay, so sort of like magic in Harry Potter then. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so you can kind of like, this gets back to my point about the imagination, right? I mean, you can see the ways that literature, right, is functioning, um, not just for kids either, as a way of kind of, enchanting the imagination, um, you know, providing new ways to think about um, how prayer works, new ways to think about how religion works, um, and so on. So I think, I think pop culture is really important, um, even in structuring people's imaginations and structuring the, the ways that people think about um, the supernatural. Okay, I think that was three, three points. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of being a student and sitting in one of David Hall's classes when he'd come to the board and he would say, okay, I have, you know, these are the five points about Puritanism. These are the five points about Puritanism, you know. He, he's laughing because he probably remembers, but, you know, we were graduate students. So we were writing everything down and so he'd go one, you know, he'd put it on the board, and, you know. And then he'd go two and he'd talk for a while about two, you know. And then he'd, and then he'd go three and he'd put that in a while. And then, and then he'd keep talking and talking and talking and there'd never be four, never be five. <laughs> you know? And we would all be changing our notes, you know. <laughs> um, so, 
so I, I won't do that to you. I do that, do that to my students, but um, so I think I think this is the fourth. This is the fourth question, but. I think that one thing that sometimes people say, oh, spiritual but not religious, spiritual people. How am I doing on time, by the way? Uh, got a couple minutes. Okay. Uh, spiritual but not religious, that's a really incoherent thing. You know, um, you know, it just it doesn't hold together. It's sort of fuzzy. It's sort of weak. It's sort of, um, and I think that there are things that actually hold it together. And I think that there would be categories and ways of thinking about it. And one category I think we want to think about is like self-expressive spirituality or self-expression or... Um, you know, and I think that that, in some ways, that kind of um, shapes many of these different types of um, of spiritual groups, um, a kind of a spirituality of self-expression. And I think I think part of that comes from the ways in which the transcendent or the divine gets relocated in the self. Uh, my first book, which was a more historical book, talks about that. You know, what's the arc of the last century and the ways in which people talk about the transcendent as existing outside of the self and a transcendent God, and, and how does that? in some ways move um, inside the self, and how, how does the 20th century become psychologized in that way, right? Um, where the sacred or whatever is an internal thing. Um, and sometimes, you know, a lot of uh, spiritual people today use words like consciousness, right? To talk about that spiritual thing inside, right? Or they might talk about the mind, or they might talk about the unconscious or the subconscious. These are all sort of places inside us, right? That are uh, that are the spiritual that are the location now uh, of the spiritual thing. Um, so I think that gives rise to a kind of a new interest in spiritual self-expression. Whether you're religious and in a religious community or you're spiritual uh, in a spiritual community. Another word that I use in my new book um, is imagination. That's also kind of naming a, a spiritual part of the self. And I would love for us to. I don't know, to, to do justice to the range of imaginative ways that people are spiritual today. You know, and I think it, that does also require a way of uh, developing a new vocabulary and how do we talk about the imagination, um, whether it's with um, you know, people's appropriations of quantum physics, right, in their imaginative ways of talking about like, you know, quantum healing or uh, energy fields that affect me, uh, or whether it's Harry Potter, right, and their imaginative ways of incorporating that, like my daughter did, into her kind of spirituality. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe a more robust sense of the imagination and, and, and the ingredients that are going into the religious and spiritual imagination. I think that's pretty um, important. In, in Other Worlds, my book, I talk a lot about the imagination. Um, and my argument there is that the modern sort of spiritual imagination is actually fashioned out of some unexpected materials, including secular discourses, secular scientific discourses. And I talk about a couple of fantastic scientific ideas in particular, like the idea that the universe has hidden dimensions to it or parallel worlds to it, right? And that's just a fascinating kind of scientific idea and an idea in math that then gets mobilized by spiritual people who say, aha, you know, wait a minute. Like, Science and mathematicians are sort of talking about this, these kind of invisible spaces. Well, why can't I talk about a heavenly space then? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a kind of a move that they, they sort of appropriate the popular science and the symbols from popular science and tropes and ideas from popular science, and they bring it into their ways of being spiritual, right? It's also, I think, um, important because I think science is sort of like, I don't know, I guess, I don't know, is this controversial to say that science is sort of the authoritative discourse in modern society? I mean, I think science is sort of the authoritative discourse in modern society. I'll say it, there I said it. <laughs> um, and um, people want to borrow that as a way of um, 
bringing a kind of power and legitimacy to their ways of talking about spiritual energy fields, right? Or spiritual dimensions like a heavenly place. Um, so I think you know, you know, the imagination and new imaginative discourses are, are, are hard to grasp, but I think we um, could do better in thinking about that. I didn't say anything about the future, did I? I'll give you a chance in just a moment. Okay. So that's great. Thank All you right. so much, Chris. And for those of you who don't know, I, I host this podcast called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where um, we, we have found very, very similar things to what Chris is just describing, especially how the imagination of, of what, um, what life can be like is so informed by the text. So whether it's people turning to the text in times of, of trial, maybe after a breakup or the death of a loved one, um, the kind of ritual pilgrimage of going to these theme parks, of course, mediated by capitalism and all sorts of uh, <laughs> questions that are really uncomfortable. Um, and, and this sense that um, uh, you can identify, right? If you, you can't identify with a spiritual identity, but I'm a Ravenclaw, or I'm a Gryffindor, right? Like that's not even a conversation. And yet those <laughs> things have such deep meanings of what that, what that says about you, what is important to you. Identity. Um, yeah, so that you're actually willing to construct an identity from this imagined world. So yeah, very uh, If I may just Please. provide a footnote. Um, the Harry Potter and the Secret Book group is not just a podcast phenomenon. There is a chapel service at the Divinity School for mm -hmm. the Harry Potter and the Sacred Book group. They're taking so over the world. There's a ritual dimension. <laughs> and, and I just want to do a shout out to the wonderful chapel service here at the Divinity School. This, this is the most open-ended definition of divinity. There's a service <laughs> for the religious nuns. And um, there's a service of Harry Potter group, and so on. Yes, and we have Carrie Maloney to thank our community chaplain. So great thanks to Carrie, indeed. <laughs> Which is not to say that anything goes. You will be interrogated if you want to host a service. Carrie will have questions for you, um, as she should. Um, Angie, share yes. your thoughts on our three questions, if you will. I wanted to see if I could move this, but I can't see you all very well, but um, thank you. Thank you all, and to Casper. And uh, Chris, you outed yourself as a historian. I will open just by outing myself and Casper along with me just to say that the two of us have MDivs from HDS. We do not have PhDs, and we, I guess, in terms of um, our, the extent to which we've done research, you could say it's been in service of attempting to be practitioners, sort of ministerial practitioners in this field. So a lot of what I will offer by way of, by way of insight from that work is really from that practitioner angle. And uh, we've been engaged in that for about six years now together, first as students and now as ministry innovation fellows. So that means that when we came here, we both came right after that big Pew study in 2012 about the rise of the nuns. And at that time, uh, you know, I can say for myself that I, it was a discovery to me that I was an unaffiliated millennial, right? Those categories as, as labels arrived in my consciousness, but had not been uh, self-selected as it were, right? It was a discovery. And I think that is part of what's at play here is some of these identities and labels are chosen and some of them are ascribed. And particularly, of course, in this conversation, there's identities, negative identities ascribed by virtue of not falling into any of the categories offered, right? So that that's part of, that's part of the tender moment, I think, that we find ourselves in is what is, what is awaiting us uh, in the realm of what is being created and, and being born in the midst of a, such a growing population who are not necessarily uh, aligning themselves or affiliating themselves with what, uh, what they've inherited. And so um, I think uh, 
for our part, there's a sense, and, and perhaps in some way, we're uh, unofficially in the lineage of Diana Eck and the Pluralism Project in the sense of all the work that has been done in mapping a religious landscape that up until that point perhaps had not been sufficiently recognized by the academy or, or given voice to in academic spaces. And so I think Casper and I, to some extent, fell into work along those lines because in the midst of all of this disaffiliation and these labels like spiritual but not religious, we just had an, in, an intuitive sense from our own experience and from looking about in this landscape that there was more to the story than millennials not going to church or what have you. And so uh, it's, it's because of that that we ended up getting to know all of these extraordinary leaders of innovative communities all over the United States who were gathering people around fitness and around the arts and around justice and around gaming and many of the things that, that Chris mentioned, yoga and what have you, and, and finding in those spaces uh, a sort of DNA that was pulsing through the communities that had to do with people engaged in personal transformation and social change and holding each other accountable to their own growth and, uh, and activating of their creativity and things like this. And uh, so that has, been, that has been a big part of our work and a big part of, I guess, attending to this question of what's changing, what kind of innovation is happening. But as it relates to these questions about both the porousness of boundaries and also what's coming. I'll, I'll just share a little bit about some of where it's led us now. And I think a pivot for us has been around uh, pivoting from looking at how community life is changing and, and how some of these new communities are emerging and might be called religious uh, to really looking at the individual and what's happening in the lives of the participants in these communities and also other individuals around the United States, whether they are technically affiliated with a religious identity or not, um, but along the lines of what Dean Hempton might call braiding, what is going on in the way that people are cobbling together a spiritual life? So I'll share a little bit about a pilot project that we're doing right now called the Formation Project, because I think it speaks to the ways that we're trying to attend to a lot of the questions that I hear being raised on this panel, which which Casper alluded to in the, the kind of association of the lack of religious identity being part of uh, the, both the rise of uh, experiences of isolation and loneliness, but also a decline in pro-social behaviors and, and all this other um, kind of, all the negative implications of what happens when you don't have an identity. And I can use a just an anecdotal example to talk about one of these community leaders who we've gotten to know, extraordinary person who we, we brought to a gathering that we had here at HDS, where it was full of all kinds of, um, all kinds of meaning making and spiritual practice and whatnot, and we were interviewing these leaders about any, uh, anything that had happened as a result of being part of this gathering in their own life, like a few months later. And this, this person said, well, I started going for walks by the lake near where I live, and intentionally looking at people lovingly. Um, and she said, I did this, uh, we said, oh, oh, how is it going, you know? And she said, well, I did it for about three weeks. Um, and we were like, wow, three weeks, you know, what changed? And she was like, well, then I stopped doing it. I feel kind of strange talking about it with you. I haven't talked about it with anyone. And it didn't really, I started to feel awkward <laughs> about doing it. And anyway, this is one way of just getting at something that we've experienced over and over again, which is a kind of spiritual insecurity, um, a sense that uh, the 
because I, I might sit over here and say, well, that's a spiritual practice, what you're doing. Um, but without a community around it, a way to make meaning of it, or any kind of container in which to deepen or uh, look at this process, you know, it was something that just fell away. And so this formation project is really an effort to create a container for spiritual deepening with two design challenges. The first being that we have participants from not only all over the United States, but uh, seven participants from other countries, as so all over the place. So hence, mediated online is a big factor here for us. And the second design uh, challenge is that they come from all different religious persuasions, right? And many of them, the, in our demographic survey, the most commonly used word was spiritual, but it was accompanied by other words and in some cases uh, not used at all. So we have all kinds of identities that we're trying to attend to. So then it becomes a question of, okay, if we don't want to, if, if in this tender moment we don't want to veer into uh, spiritual narcissism, right? Or we, we want to kind of combat not only these this kind of social and spiritual disconnection, but also some of our polarization and also right. If we're if we're listening to all these big questions, then what can we do to bring people together in a way that will help them go deeper and uh, and yet also accommodate and not just accommodate temporarily, but actually uh, be about the fact that we we are going to be uh, seeking a kind of spiritual unity without at any point anticipating uniformity when it comes to belief or practice or uh, language that we might use to talk about it. So the first thing that we asked these participants was to name what's on their line. And the way that we kind of talked about that was what what is it that is ultimately calling you or what is your highest loyalty? And in reading some of your work, Anna, it was making me think about, well, we did kind of position that in the singular uh, and there are some interesting questions about what what would it look like to 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 use more plurality even in that invitation. But amongst the participants on their line, you have everything from um, you know from Christ consciousness to primordial awareness to Buddha nature to God to divine mother to right. You have all kinds of different language that people are using, and some you know justice or love or emptiness, right? So. Um, that, and then we're inviting them over the course of a year to explore that uh, first within themselves, then in others, and then beyond. <laughs> so it's that kind of inner outer mystery, inner outer transcendent that is forming the arc, the principles of this year they're spending together. And um, and the we're halfway through this pilot, but I, I'm. Um, struck by one of the things we felt was necessary in order to invite people into that kind of journey, which was the creation of something called wisdom wells, which at this moment is totally underdeveloped, but is basically just uh, a kind of curated beginning list of practices and resources from across traditions that might be of service to you in exploring that blank within yourself and in others and beyond, right? And so it's it's this kind of design challenge where in practice we're attempting to, to kind of respond to some of the trends that I hear you all talking about in a way that actually allows people to have a feeling of agency <laughs> in their own spiritual lives and then to accompany each other in the process, right? So they're meeting in small groups online for a year uh, that meet every week for 90 minutes. So it's a robust, kind of deeply committed experience. Um, so I think there's, 
there's a, there's a lot around this question of what it is to construct your own religious identity and the extent to which that is something that we can do for ourselves versus the extent to which that is given to us, right? And that's part of the experiment that we have in this project is will people begin to name themselves in some way as associated with this work or this effort or this, that, that there be a legitimacy that starts to emerge in them that says um, this part of my life is worthy of attention and even something that I could call myself in relation to. Wonderful, thank you Ange. So we will open it up in just a minute, but I, I wanna give uh, each of you just a, a chance to respond to what you've heard. And in particular, I want to press you mm. on this last question of where are we going next? Um, just to add one provocative statement, I, I think Anna, you were talking about before, uh, uh, about this um, spiritual vacuum, which is such a wonderful phrase which reminded me of a report from Vice News that came out last summer that talked about um, as brands are engaging more and more with politics, that spirituality is the next white space for brands. Um, and so uh, I, I happened to be at Calvin Klein yesterday morning in New York City uh, talking about this. And they are, you know, as one brand, interested in spirituality. You know, they make clothing, especially intimates, as they used to, to describe underwear, which I thought was fascinating, kind of old fashioned to me, uh, intimates. But anyway, so we started talking about this idea of, uh, you know, if you're putting something on your physical body that is so close, you know, that there's such an intimacy to this, uh, to this material object, could they, as a brand, uh, engage bigger questions of intimacy, not just to your body, but to your heart, to your mind, to your soul? Has uh, anybody so told them about Mormon undergarments? Well, exactly. <laughs> That's what I should have done. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's a new product opportunity. Yes, <laughs> really. Well, so we, we joke, but really, this, this, I think, is one of the, the key questions to think about as... As you were saying, Chris, that the places where spirituality or religion happens, you know, the workplace or, or certainly the kind of brands that, that we engage with, whether we want to or not, is one of them. So uh, I, I say that merely to, to provoke uh, any, any responses that you have as you think about where is religion and spirituality going? You know, you just uh, gave me an opening, don't you? <laughs> Which is, of course, the critique that, of course, businesses want their workers to explore their inner spirituality so they will be content and not ask for higher wages. <laughs> say, say more about the future, then. <laughs> oh, the future. Uh, well, I think one, one thing I want to respond to in what we've heard is one of the ways that uh, Angie, you constructed the, the sort of either or mm. of people constructing a spiritual identity for themselves as opposed to having it imposed on them. Mm. And I think, in fact, what your project is attempting is to offer people ways to collectively construct a spiritual identity that is, yes, theirs, but not imposed, but, mm -hmm. but that, that, you know, mm -hmm. engages at a level that is not simply the self. Right. Um, and one of the other things I will say about the future is that uh, I think, uh, Chris, you're pushing us to think about 
uh, imagination and enchantment. Uh, and Anna, you're uh, pushing us to think about the importance of ritual uh, and the extent to which people are engaged in these kinds of ritual practices. All of that, I think, really uh, emphasizes the degree to which whatever it is that is emerging, those dimensions of thinking imaginatively, <laughs> recognizing the ma magic and, mu and mystery uh, around us, naming that magic and mystery, and finding ways to engage in ritual acts that reaffirm, that name what it is we've experienced and reaffirm that, and in so doing also connect us to the uh, the people and the places and the traditions that give our can give our lives some shape. Um, I loved the presentations, if I may, and I just want to say, I just started watching the OA. There you go. Do you know about that one? Mm. So that counts as research now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> it's amazing. I had to stop myself from clicking next. <laughs> so. Um, and I love that phrase, spiritual narcissism. That's, that's yeah. really wonderful. <laughs> so going back to the collective reconstruction of the narcissistic. So, so Nancy, of course, you've been talking about the changing institutional structure of religious life. But we are seeing that really mm -hmm. happening mm -hmm. on very large scale, and that's what I hear from Chris mm -hmm. and from, from, from Angie. From churches to retreat centers, um, from fee, paying church tax, paying to um, commercial activities. And in fact, Chinese uh, religious sites are very much commercial um, entities as well. Um, and then from commitment, as you know, per annum, financial commitment to, to commitment of, um, of, um, of faith to you know, paying per visit and, and commitment only really just to your own preference. Um, from a church attendance to apps. You know, many people use apps these days for meditation, for, for uh, sacred texts, and so on. So for that, venerating For venerating ancestors. ancestors. There's yes. an app mm -hmm. for veneration, ancestral veneration as well. And also from going from seeking out uh, theological authority and respecting theological authority, that still happens, of course, still mm -hmm. in place, but I've been looking at Yelp church reviews. Mm. So, you know, if you're moving to a new place, you want to go to church, you go to Yelp, mm -hmm. which is a commercial, you know, rating yeah. site. Yeah. So all of these changes are really changing the substance of our religious experience. So where do I see in the future? Um, the Chinese case is interesting because here you can see that people are saying, I don't have to go to church anymore. People stop going to church after they go to get to college. We, we just mm -hmm. heard about this uh, latest survey that uh, students becoming nuns. Um, there's a, I can't remove the percentage, but many young people become nuns after they go to college. So without their, their, the constraints of family, obligations, they just stop going to church, for example. So there's this kind of freedom, and we can try all kinds of new things available online, on our iPhones, um, in commercial centers. China has been seeing that for quite a few decades now, mm. because the, the socialist state essentially um, um, 
eliminated the public presence of religious organizations, institutions for 40 years until they made a return in the 1980s, 90s, and, and up to today. But where do people go? They go back to tradition. So if I, I've never had, I've never been asked that question, what do you see in the future? Hmm. I've never been given that crystal ball before. Yeah. And I'm trying to stare hard into it. But I think trust the resilience of tradition. So when people have all kinds of opportunities to seek out new religious expressions, in China today, we seek, we see a return to very traditional ritual practice, to ancient um, ethical systems, uh, to a relearning and reinvention of tradition. So what's the tradition here? We have a pluralistic tradition, plural tradition as well. It is Judeo-Christian, but there are other things as well. Buddhism is also part of the American tradition, for example. And Harry Potter is becoming an American tradition. But there's a sense that we re in order to see the future, we have to look back into the past. Beautiful. That's a perfect segue to what I wanted to say. In order to see into the future, uh, we have to think about the past. So I just wanted to say that in terms of, uh, well, I don't usually predict the future, but since Casper's forcing us, I will say that you know, a lot of people see things in the future, and, and we've even talked about these things like loneliness. You know? mm -hmm. A lot of people say, oh, more loneliness, more religious decline, and more dangerous technology. Okay, and, and th those are the three sort of narratives I, I would point to, and I guess I would say, speaking as a historian, I don't see that happening. Um, you know, the trope of American individualism and loneliness goes back to the American founding. I mean, you know, the lonely crowd, you know, there's a long, there's a 20th century literature about how lonely we are, how terrible it is. That literature sort of continues today, we're so lonely. Uh, the same thing with religious decline. I mean, the Puritans were banging their heads on their tables about religious decline in the late 1600s, right? So religious decline is a historical trope. We, we're repeating it again today, right? And then, of course, like dystopian technological visions, the dangers of new technologies, right? I was just reading in the 50s what people were writing in popular magazines about the new televisions, right? You know, literally articles about television causing psychosis. There's a great book in 1978 about how television viewing causes psychosis. So there's, you know, these are pretty common narratives in, in American life about loneliness, um, about the decline of religion. And I, I guess I would just say that people will always need other people. And people will always need religion and spirituality. That's just kind of what I think. So they're going to find it. Um, and then the question for us as scholars is, like, how do we find new ways of finding how they're finding it? Right? We don't want to use the old categories. Um, you know, we need to sort of think about new ways that people are finding other people, new ways that people are finding sort of religious connection and ritual and belonging and spirituality, right? And then uh, new ways that people are using technologies, right? There's so much, so much hand-wringing about technology today. Um, that's my prediction. <laughs> yeah, I would just build on that, Chris, in the sense of I, in, if to make claims about the way people are, um, in addition to needing each other, I think there is some kind of fundamental creativity that individuals have in terms of the way they live their lives. And so that's part of where my interest and hope about the future comes from, too, is just, I mean, even in the six years that Casper and I have been like really asking about and looking at innovation in the realm of community and and spirituality the 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 sheer proliferation that has happened in that short window is astonishing and what's kind of uh burgeoning is also remarkable so there i guess 
part of it is there is that element of it is impossible to predict by virtue of the fact that it will come from that kind of generative energy that is in response to these phenomena we see. Um, but I definitely would echo that some of the most exciting efforts are the ones that are really actively in conversation with some of our most ancient wisdom about uh, being human. And that also I really hope that as religious scholars and practitioners, we will go, we, we, I would say we need to be there, as it were, in what is unfolding in the sense that, like my friend Sarah Koss, who's a graduate of HDS, who, she, she did the thing of going to Instagram and just looking at hashtag spiritual and seeing what was there and the extent to which, you know, it was disheartening, just how much of it was selling stuff and all this. But to her credit, she was like, so I need to be there. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go be on Instagram as a platform for what I'm trying to do that's, you know, that she sees as ministry, right? And, and there are a lot of other venues like that that I hope that there's uh, just active engagement with because it's going to be necessary to help in this kind of uh, inflection point we're in. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for your kind attention. Now it is over to you. So I would love if you would be willing to turn to someone next to you. Perhaps you know them even better if you don't. Uh, and just share something that resonates from the conversation, something that has you thinking, perhaps something that you want to challenge or interrogate. Um, and after just a few minutes of conversation, we'll then uh, engage in some uh, Q&O, as I recently heard it, questions and opinions, because we're not claiming we have the answers. I like that. Uh, I like so, that. You uh, <laughs> so please talk, talk to your neighbor or someone nearby, and uh, we'll be back together in just a few minutes. Um, friends, what kind of, I know you're only just getting started, but remember there is wine and cheese uh, in, in just 40 minutes. So uh, what questions, reflections do we have? I'm so curious to hear from you all. Yes. So thank you all for your contributions. My name's Colin, I'm a PhD student up the street at the Fletcher School. Uh, mm. And Nicole, who's a visiting potential student here at HDS, and I we're talking first about the, the idea that you brought up, Casper, of the commodification or commercialization of you know, religion, belonging, love, and what have you. Thank you. So if we want to go down that rabbit hole further, that would be great. A question to you all is to concretize the future of religion by speaking about the, uh, the longstanding tradition of obligation um, or discipline or what have you in addition to or sort of in opposition to uh, the neoliberal cafeteria approach, because I think eventually, as we deal with community, we're going to have to dance with community expectation, and I think um, many religions have lost a lot of wasta when it comes to having the moral uh, high ground to be able to, to enforce discipline on people, and yet, I think we daily get a lesson in what happens when there's no objective norm for behavior to appeal to. <laughs> What, you read the president's Twitter feed? <laughs> <laughs> so let's have two of us respond to each question so we don't get overwhelmed. Uh, so if this question of discipline really speaks to you, then you can take it. I just, I'll say really quickly that, I mean, I think it is true that religious identity is chosen now more than it is ascribed as it was more 100 years ago. But I think that that individualism, if we want to call it, call it that, I mean, people do then choose to submit to a system of rules and obligations. So you, you see that in a number of new groups, you see that in people who convert to religious groups, so there still is a, it's not just all individualism and, and autonomy and locating authority in the self. Authority is given to bodies that are larger than the self. Yeah, I would just say amen to that. 
and um, add that <clears throat> it's not just sort of spiritual seekers who often fall prey to this, you know, mm -hmm. you know I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Uh, it's also liberal Protestants. Have you met Unitarian Universalists? I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. Have you been to my church like that? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't want you to even you know fill out a visitor's card if you didn't really want to. <laughs> Optional visitor card? <laughs> oh yeah. And Nancy, that's an American Baptist congregation. Is no, that right? no, it's a uh, UCC Presbyterian. <laughs> but I, I, I we can't even decide which one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, other questions, reflections? Yes, over here. Hi. Um, I'm interested in this idea of like the, did you call it mediation, the um, electronic mediation? Um, I have an intuitive sense. Well, not, not just an intuitive sense, but from an education standpoint, 90, I think it's 95% of MOOCs and online classes fail because there is no um, social accountability or social capital to that in person. As we mediate these things, I feel like the church or religious institutions and the traditions have kept people coming back or this is, do you guys have any intuition, research ideas on like what are trends or things we need to do for that IRL sustenance um, in order to create that accountability? IRL being in real life, yes. So that's a great question. So Chris mentioned um, a lot of the rituals, um, things that people are, are, are doing online um, also raise a question of authenticity, right? So in the Chinese context, there have been online um, ritual activities, apps for rituals, but they don't really take off. So my own, mm. my own thinking about this is that ritual life has to be analog. Mm. And in fact, there's an extraction in our digital world. So mm. you may connect to the people you're gonna do rituals with, such as family members on, um, you know, on, on Twitter or on, on texts and on your phone, but you have to be there together. And a lot of the ritual work is done in that shared physical activity, embodied activity, emotional activity of doing rituals together. So I actually think for rituals to be effective, it needs to be analog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my understanding of the people like uh, Heidi Campbell, who did this research on like digital culture and digital religion, say they say just that, right? That that is sort of a hybrid. What's happening is sort of a hybrid. I mean, people. People have their online religious communities, but they connect them to their, you know, in-person religious communities. Or people, people use religious apps all the time, um, but they're connected to um, in-person um, groups and stuff. So, so a lot of the online goes along with um, goes along with the communities. Yeah, I think that hybridity is is really important. I'm thinking, uh, Margie, of the kind of the Sabbath blessing. You know, Jewish families who grew up having you know a parent bless the children on a Friday night who then still have a phone call, right, when, when Shabbat arrives. And so that, how, how a, a physical ritual can then become mediated through, in that case, a phone rather than a screen, but that, that, that it's anchored in something that's real um, before it becomes this kind of digital I mean, ha experience. Having said that, there are the examples that I mentioned, like televangelism around the world, where there is, in televangelism in America, where 
it does seem to be replacing going to church. Um, people do watch the screen and get the transmission, and some of them believe literally the Holy Spirit comes through the transmission. So I think in some context, and there are other contexts with sort of pagans in America and in Europe who do rituals that are sort of screen-based. Um, so there is a way in which some um, digital culture is replacing um, in person. Is there like a, um, a critical mass of efficaciousness where it's like every three months you need to get together IRL? <laughs> I know that's so clinical, but I'm like, you can't do it once a year. Yeah. I, that's my, like yeah. I'm a community organizer. You can't. Yeah, I mean, Margie, it's been fascinating, and this relates to Colin's question of discipline as well. Like with the formation project, which is the actual project, architecture is online, and the participants in small groups in many cases have never met each other. They mm -hmm. met through this project, and their groups are meeting every week online. The, the number one criterion for participation in the project was desire, and it had to be for their commitment to that which calls them, not to us or this project or in the beginning, even to each other, because they had never met. <laughs> their, their relationships are developing in that container. But it, 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 it's really, I think, in a context of some pretty significant desperation, <laughs> which is just to say it's either do this online or don't do it. Right, and, and, and be still like alone and not prioritizing this thing that you know is the most meaningful part of your life but you can't get around to it because of all the other obligations you have. And so it's, it's and I, you know, we had some portion of the participant, of the prospective participants um, drop off specifically because they were like, the last thing I need is more screen time in my life, you know, and I am a participant and I feel that way broadly but it's worth it to me because what is offered as a result is, too meaningful to not do. And I have hope that as our technology evolves, it will feel less and less like a screen and more and more like um, you know, an experience of interaction. And of course, that's to be TBD. <laughs> May I add one more thing to it? You just said the, a magic word to me, um, to us, which is uh, efficacious. Uh -huh. So I think we also need to think about a kind of sociology of efficacy. Um, a colleague and I are thinking about actually starting a project on the sociology of efficacy, not as in whether it, something is actually efficacious, but what we mean by efficacy. When does it work? When, what is our perceived sense of efficacy and how that affects our um, religious spiritual activities? So, so I think that's an important component, yeah. actually. Nancy, I'm, I'm thinking of your work with um, sacred stories, sacred mm -hmm. tribes. I can never get the, the right yeah, way around. I can't remember either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so much of your, of your study there was looking at how people, you know, <clears throat> asking people to take photographs of moments mm -hmm. that were spiritual or, yeah. and, and seeing the breadth of spiritual things that people were doing that we might not traditionally recognize as religious. Were there, were there any things in there that had that electronically mediated component? Hmm. Good question. I actually don't think so. Mm, that's interesting. Now there, yeah. Hmm. I remember one person took a picture of her desk, of her you know, sort of um, with her computer. But what she was, um, what she was signaling there was both all of the other material objects around the computer that she had there as sort of reminders of who she is and what she does and why it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, the computer, though, was part of her, uh, in her case, writing stories for children that embody 
uh, pagan themes. Uh, so in that sense, the computer was important because it's helping her to produce this spiritual product. Fascinating. Yeah. I wonder, because that was 2010? Yeah. Well, the research was done uh, in like 2006, 7, and 8. Well, they, so I'm thinking yeah. already that so, yeah. the changes in technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we didn't have iPhones right. to give people, or you know, they didn't have iPhones right. to take pictures. And especially the kind of multiplayer gaming things that we oh, see. Oh, yeah. yeah. Not yet. Yeah. Other questions, reflections? Yes, over here. And then I'll come to you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, my name is Hwang, who is a second year MTS student in HTS. And I'm wondering how you guys, uh, how you see the possibility that modern spirituality may enforce exclusionary social boundaries and or that it surveyed the inner social or political inequality and undermine a broader collective identity. Because when it comes to our current um, discourse of near spirituality or lived experience of spirituality, we tend to overemphasize the po positive aspect of it. But um, I also see the potential danger of it because sometimes, or right now I'm thinking about growing association of mindfulness practice and consumer culture has mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. So more and more students in HDS are talking about how it may be dangerous to see to witness that growing association mm -hmm. between mind, mind, mindfulness practice or modern spirituality and consumer culture and neoliberalism, which work as a, whether as a complement of neoliberalism that justifies and mm -hmm. or kind of legitimize some kind of exploitative economic and political system which is not wholly new because some sociologists like Paul Hillas and Kimberly Lowe talked about new age capitalism, how new age yeah. practice has been worked as complement or supplement of capitalism. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how do you see the possibility that this modern spirituality practice can work as reinforce or even more kind of have more role in having a I'm rambling, but I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> boundaries. Yeah. That's a great question. Yes. Can I respond with a couple of um, things that occur to me? One is that uh, many of the things that we've been pointing to as people experimenting with alternative ways of being spiritual, even alternative gatherings, are not the kinds of things that people without economic resources have access to. Um, I'm not sure how many people without uh, economic resources would show up at a Star Wars convention or, you know, a Harry Potter, even, you know, have an iPhone to get your Harry Potter uh, podcast, whatever. Uh, so I think that's one of the things to, to really think hard about when we talk about where the alternatives are and how people are gathering. Uh, what's that, what are the resources that are available to people? And, you know, related to that, I alluded earlier to the, what we are learning about the consequences of disengagement in the African-American church. Anna um, and I heard a really uh, powerful presentation a couple of weeks ago at a conference uh, that looks at the, the people who are the, the African-American non-affiliates, and they are less likely to vote 
They're less likely to be involved in any other kind of community activism. They're less likely to think about race in structural terms. They're more likely to think it's an up by your bootstraps kind of phenomenon. Uh, so, you know, they are getting disconnected from a tradition and a community that has given them a way of, a critical edge and a way of being in American society. And that has real consequences. Um, so, you know, there are some, I think, really important critical questions to ask about the potential downsides. And, and yes, some of them are about what does it mean to have mindful employees. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only thing, oh, sorry, Anna, please, yeah. after you. Oh, I just want to uh, just say that that is such an important question and something that's very much on my mind when I do research in China as well. Mm. Um, because you do see a lot of the retroactivities that are really limited to um, the unit of the family. So you don't have a community doing things together. Um, you're not caring for strangers. But what I can say about Confucian rituals is that it is not completely de uncoupled, decoupled from ethics in action. So there's a great, um, at least historically, a great connection and demand almost um, to connect ritual activities with ethical action outside of the ritual context. So in this form of you know, self-constructed uh, spiritual identity that we've been talking about, how can we bring ethics in action into it, yeah. I think is key. And I don't have the answer to it, but I can see there's a connection in the Chinese case yeah. between ritual and ethics. <laughs> well, just, I mean, to follow on, the uh, one, one place to look at it is within the workplace, as was just being mentioned, and, you know, you can, uh, if, if we take that humans need connection as much as water and air or something like that, then if, if one is not affiliated in community, then the workplace becomes often a site that people bring their whole lives to in some sense, um, and so then you have that, um, a potentially insidious possibility in which the something like mindfulness is being offered in that space, in part in response to this sense that this needs to be a space of meaning. And uh, Rev. Eric Martinez Resley, who's another HDS grad, talks about you know the on the one hand, if you have your mindfulness that's going to make you a, a more uh, stress-free employee or what have you, versus if you take the riches of mindfulness to its natural end and where you will probably leave that job, right? That that's a very different kind of, um, and so I think part of it, at least in the relationship between a commodified environment and a spiritual practice has to do with the, the source of that offering and, and um, the extent to which it is allowed to uh, take the individual <coughs> practitioner to its, to, to where it leads them. <laughs> um, and that, you know, there's, there's a lot of kind of, in this particular moment where all of this is unfolding, there are a lot of different versions of how that's being offered and how it's being received. Um, but I think that's one of the most interesting spaces to ask these kinds of questions, because it's something so much in progress. Yeah, I was just going to just add to that. Um, yeah, I think this is this is a pretty common complaint, right, in the scholarly literature about spiritual but not religious people, that they're sort of they're sort of enmeshed in the capitalist world, they're sort of enmeshed in consumer culture, and 
I guess I'm a little bit suspicious of that, um, you know, and I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was actually, you know, a church member or whatever, and this was sort of his complaint about spiritual but not religious, that they're kind of, you know, that's a spirituality or a religiousness that's kind of enmeshed in consumer capitalism and therefore I don't like it. And, and I just wonder a little bit if like older theological, Christian theological categories are structured in that critique a little bit, sort of like, well, there's the church and right. then there's the world. Exactly. You know, the church should be separate <laughs> and then there's all the worldly stuff. And, and then I start to think about examples like, okay, well, there's Catholic retreat centers, for example, and then there's Esalen, the New Age retreat center. And there's a whole book about Esalen, for instance, mm -hmm. called like the spiritual gold rush and about how, mm -hmm. you know, how, how awful it is. And, but are we making the same sort of comments about how other sorts of religious, um, you know, communities are also enmeshed in mm -hmm. systems of consumer capitalism? So I just wonder a little bit about how we're thinking about those categories. Chris, you took the words right out of my mouth. Beautiful. <laughs> we had a question over here, then we'll go over there, and then we'll come to you. Thank you for that very enlightening uh, talk. Uh, I'm a member of the public, so my question will be in lay person's terms. So the first part of my question is about the study that's been done about the nuns. So I'm wondering if we wait long enough whether some of these nuns will go back to their traditions, which is what some of us did after... 10, 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. so that's one thing. But um, the second part of my question has to do with tradition, with culture, and with actually uh, what it means to be a Christian and how it fits into the American culture, so to speak. Um, I grew up in the old countries, I grew up in the Middle East, in a Muslim country. As a Christian, we used to pray when the Imam started praying. Mm. So there was no division between the secular and the mundane. We went into science class, we came out, we went into religious class. There was no schizophrenic approach to life. But here I find there is a, some kind of schizophrenic approach because everything is very compartmentalized. So maybe, just maybe, Christianity is really no longer a valid religion for this culture. And maybe we need a new myth. <laughs> so my question to you is, what kind of myth do you think would fit the American culture? Because the way Christianity is being marketed, it's very hard to recognize, actually, <laughs> for somebody who comes from the old country. So that's my question. Thank you. Hmm. I'm going to give a really quick response to your first point. Uh, increasingly, the people who are non-affiliated actually grew up in households where they were brought up as non-affiliated. So they don't have anything to go back to. We used to joke in, back in the 90s that people who were uh, non-affiliated uh, didn't stay that way, that nuns weren't very good at reproducing themselves. Hmm. Um, but <laughs> he got it. Yep. He got it. <laughs> but increasingly, they are reproducing themselves, <laughs> which means it's a much more stable identity. Hmm. What about this question of a new myth? I'm not touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah. That's a very important question. Yeah, it's it's funny. My husband just helped to create a week-long event at Esalen on what is the new myth for the coming century. <laughs> and I have to say that gathering kind of um, it, it it ended up with people 
take like taking the opportunity to express in the space the ways that they felt excluded from the myths that we have that was kind of that was the most important thing that was felt to be necessary by the participants um, to get across in the space that was open there um, which is which is to say it seems that if we're going to get toward something there's a lot of there's a lot of healing and repair that is, I, I've, there's, there's so much work that's not done. Um, it feels like it would be, what do they call it? It would be like spiritual bypassing or something to just try to create a new, a new shiny myth. Um, it feels like that to me would be one of the first steps is to actually contend with the, the reality of um, what so many are grieving and, um, and wounded by. And I just want to say, I, I wish I were there for that conference. It sounds fascinating. Um, but I think when we speak of new myth, it has to be plural. We're, we're really creating yeah. multiple new myths everywhere all the time. I, I'm not a fan of Game of Thrones. Is that a new myth for those of you who watch it? Maybe. But, but, I, but I've, met, uh, I've interviewed teenagers who, who would tell me very excitedly of, of new myth based on games. Yeah. So multiple new myths are being created all the time, but it's not going to be that big one big shiny myth. That's going to take centuries. Indeed, and, and I, I, what I would add to that is that the most effective stories that we see in popular culture now build on tropes that have been established and, and kind of mine meaning that has, has, has been there for many years. So I think it's about... You know, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for someone to reinvent Easter. Uh, I, I feel like Easter, as, as this kind of moment in our culture, certainly for kind of Christian dominant culture, has, has increasingly lost its meaning as people yeah. uh, go to services less and less. Um, and so, but it's ultimately this incredibly meaningful thing of, of, of life out of death. And so it could have real resonance. I think there's some, some uh, liturgical invitation there to create something entirely new. Uh, well, sorry, not And I don't new. think myths, that the myth we need is necessarily a cosmic, big explanation for everything. I think people need lots of little stories. And I would just say too, just picking up on, on your point, Casper, that you know, don't underestimate the elasticity of tradition yeah. and, and of Christianity in particular. Um, mm -hmm. Look at American history, you know, the ways that it's ebbed and flowed and changed over time in response to, you know, your Christianity when you grew up was one thing and, you know, but it's different all over the world and it changes. So um, there is a kind of a power to it. It keeps coming back, you know. That's a great tagline. It keeps coming back. <laughs> um, over here. Yeah. So this is sort of, in, in some ways, to kind of complicate the division that got drawn earlier between the church and the world, because I think there's a, a broader chasm between the spiritual and the mundane. And um, for a number of years, I, I'm a minister, but I was, in, I was in a clinical setting for a number of years, an administrative and an academic, and now I'm back in parish ministry. And it's interesting being in the messy thick of congregational life. You know, all the ways the theories don't hold up in practice. It's <laughs> constructive in and of itself. Um, but, that's, but that's where the practice is, is where the theories break down. Yeah. And so what I'm struck by with a lot of the spiritual bypassing um, is how our culture needs a chaplaincy, right? And yeah. it doesn't know how to access the chaplaincy. And also how... Um, Embodiment is a, um, a cure for anthropology. <laughs> so that when things, um, 
need to be embodied. I think it's harder to hold on to these high-minded anthropologies about our perfectibility. Whereas if it's just you and your, and your app and your phone, and I think this gets to this sort of spiritual narcissism, and you don't have to deal with the tragic faux pas that happens in a fellowship hour after service <laughs> where someone's worldview actually gets shattered you know, over the coffee. Uh. Um, then it's easy to think that like, you know, we just need a certain set of formulae to run um, and that it's not relational. So it, it's interesting when sort of things are in the relational and what it means to be human mix, it's humbling in a way that I think is more spiritual than, than we give credit for. Well, this is, uh, if I could just give a shout out to my advisor, David Hall. This is where David Hall's work on lived religion is so powerful, right? Because he showed just that, that it's sort of in, in the moments of practice, which is where people perform in the gaps, um, where the, the mythology and the theology is breaking down and they're piecing it back together. And there's so much more that's it's in there, right? That you don't see when you, and when you look at it closely, then and you see all kinds of things about what's happening on the ground in, in religious America. I'm, I'm going to perform, uh, Adam, I'm going to bypass you to honor, to honor the ancestors and go straight to the man himself. I have no answers. One of the, one of the uh, when, when in the 90s when I was uh, reading in the sociology of religion um, and in, and in, and in uh, religiously inflected uh, histories of the past, one of the uh, sort of overwhelming points that came home was that there had never been a true golden age. So that uh, in the Middle Ages, yeah. I know a lot about France, the Middle Ages, you know, very few French people were actually taking part in communion. In highly Presbyterianized Scotland, if they came once a year for communion, that was lucky. Hmm. So we, we can very, very easily exaggerate the homogeneity or, or persistence of, of any practice in the past. They are, they are all in some measure tempered or, or use Chris's word, mediated by, by other circumstances, it does not mean that they could not retain a high symbolic importance uh, as articulated by, by a leadership class, a, co leader, leadership, a coherent leadership class. But uh, just to give you one concrete example, the uh, Presbyterian Church in Scotland in the 17th century prided itself on guarding the Lord's Supper from the unworthy. When in the Westminster Assembly, which most of you know nothing about, when in the Westminster Assembly of 1644, one of the English uh, anti-Presbyterians said, well, do you actually really exclude anybody? The leading Presbyterians there said, well, actually sheepishly, we, we actually don't actually really exclude anybody. The rhetoric was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal, off the charts. The practice was something else because uh, for various reasons. One is the, the emotional, the political price of excluding people was higher than the religious cost of admitting them. <laughs> so those kinds of compromises is what, is what you're really pointing to, Chris, is that these occur wherever. I just want to rush on to two more things. It's tremendously poignant. I have to say it's, I, 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 I uh, this is a very depressing panel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, it's depressing, I'll come to why it's so depressing in, in two, two ways. It's, it's poignant that the Chinese have something to fall back on. In the midst of their neoliberal huh. transformation, they have Confucianism to fall back on. So one of the ways of understanding American culture is that we don't have anything to fall back on. We have nothing to fall back on. There is, our Christianity was left-wing Protestantism from the start, highly, therefore, local-centered, participatory-centered, uh, in a sense, freedom-centered. 
uh, and uh, whatever its great strengths have been and were. And, you know, evangelicalism does promote a certain kind of individualistic practice. There's no two ways about it, despite its regulating capacities. So we don't have a, a resource, a well, a deep well. And I feel this when I go to Japan for all of the horrible crises, spiritual crises in Japan, the vacuum in Japan. Nonetheless, there is a commitment to family that's unlike anything we have in this culture at all. It's just there. You, 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 don't, you don't question it, it's just there. So then in terms of myth, the, uh, I think one of the myths that, uh, this is not a national myth, it's a myth among students of, of religion and, and, <laughs> and prophets of religion, is that there is some great new age dawning. And uh, so if there was no golden age in the past, I just suggest there's no golden age <laughs> in, the, in the future. And the Nancy's very, very appropriate and often overlooked comment on the situation of the black church is hugely relevant. Uh, the collapse of male participation in the black church uh, for various reasons, uh, the collapse of the authority of the black church, absolutely no moral authority any longer. Uh, the collapse of its social, its role as a social cohesive figure. Uh, you know, we have Martin Luther King and that's it. And Martin Luther King himself was in a certain way a neoliberal figure. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, really, it's really, I just want to under, underscore that, that, the, that the normative, what may seem like a normative possibility that there'll be a robust new spirituality overcoming the uh, the very, very severe realities of people in distress, uh, suicides, addictions, poverty, moral, lives without moral significance, which uh, I see something of in the great state of Maine where I spend some of the, some of the year a lot, because it's right there in your face, you know, around the corner. Uh, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be uh, overcome by some uh, new form of spirituality. Well, as a Brit, I've booked my one-way ticket back home, um, <laughs> where at least we have the Queen. <laughs> I'll, I'll invite Adam just to, to offer our final question, um, and then uh, I'll ask each of you just to respond with any final, final comments. Uh, well, that is a tough act to follow. <laughs> uh, but maybe it relates to my question, uh, and there's so much richness here that I sort of have a constellation of questions, and I'm going to try to turn it into one. Um, so uh, there's this uh, term called VUCA, uh, which might be a military term, uh, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Um, and some people have uh, sort of uh, noted how uh, there's a rise in uh, the sort of the cultural experience of VUCA, uh, at least in certain pockets, uh, certainly seems so in our country. Um, uh, and, you know, part of what we're, uh, you know, hearing here is uh, kind of the, the dominant religious structures are ceasing to work, they're ceasing to be compelling, um, uh, which I'm sure contributes to the VUCA. Uh, and also, um, I wonder if some of what is happening is sort of uh, a response to uh, you know, this increasing uh, uncertainty and ambigu ambiguity that we feel, uh, that we need something to help get us through that. Uh, and so we see some uh, sort of turning to like more like concrete fundamentalist uh, ways of thinking. Uh, like I, th I think there's been sort of a surprise that that's like increasing in, in so many ways. Um, uh, so 
I, I guess my, my question is, um, what is oh, <laughs> what is my question? Uh, it's something with the with the the tension here, sort of, uh, and I mean, you kind of gave an answer to like, there's not something that's going to pull us out of this. Uh, so maybe my question is follow up was like, well, what does it mean if we don't have something to pull us out of uh, pull us out of these trends? What does this mean for kind of our society and our country? Um, uh, somebody uh, uh, maybe give us some hope or uh, <laughs> pull us out of the ditch in some way. Go for it. <laughs> okay, I, I will give you the yes, try first. Um, here's a hopeful angle. Very few Americans are true atheists. So theism has a very long tradition in this country. Um, people, very few people um, in surveys, in... Um, in interviews would come out as Richard Dawkins. So I think that means there's always going to be this desire to reconstruct not personal spirituality, but religious tradition. Um, so I'm going to refer to a concept that may not be directly related to your question, but may be useful, which is the concept of civil religion, which is not a religion per se, it is a kind of political theology, but the idea of a civil religion is that it is something a people construct in a democracy based on the religious ethical traditions we share. And these traditions are plural traditions. So what if uh, we are going to um, collectively um, realize this need for us to put together our religious tradition shared by the American people, which is a very diverse people. So we were going to have you know, elements from Judeo-Christianity, maybe American Buddhism, maybe other religious traditions, um, to, to really find a way for us to have a, a narrative of a people uh, that's, that has the sacred at the center. So that's my hopeful thinking, but I think the fact that very few Americans are, are true atheists, um, gives one the sense that we will need this collective narrative, no matter um, what happens to our individual practice. Yeah, yeah, I guess I would just point to, again, the elasticity of Christianity and the elasticity of tradition and the ways that it changes over time. And, and I'll also point to other periods in American history, like, uh, have any of you seen this, whatever, seven-part documentary in the Vietnam in the late 1960s? And talk about despair and, um, you know, Social unrest, I mean, it blew me away. It's before my time, but um, blew me away to watch it. I was going to say, some it. of us didn't need to see the documentary. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, what a time of uh, talk about suicide and despair and, um, you know, and then, you know, after World War II and during the Civil War. And so, I mean, I think that there's been times of crisis before um, in this country, right? And there's been an ebb and flow of different forms of what we're calling religion and spirituality. So... Um, there may be no golden age in the future, but there may be similar things that we've seen in the past in the future. I guess I will uh, inject some um, pessimism along with the optimism. <laughs> um, in that I think it's not at all surprising that we find people in fundamentalist type uh, religious communities and that 
that's not going to go away anytime soon, and that those communities are going to be, by definition, pretty high bounded uh, and pretty exclusionary. Uh, at the same time that they're trying to, you know, recruit people in, but part of what gives them that sense of assurance and, you know, focus and we know the rules is, and we know the truth and we also know that therefore you don't have it. Uh, so there are those, those tendencies and I don't think that's going to go away anytime real soon. Um, but I think Anna's point is really interesting that there is somehow still a, um, there still are elements of stories within uh, American traditions that can conceivably be drawn on uh, by people who want to help us move together to do things together for the common good, that uh, those too can, can actually be quite powerful. Well, since I already invoked my husband once, I'll just share a story, which is to say uh, we got married last year, and he's Indian from Kerala, and his family is Hindu, and um, I needed to be converted to Hinduism. And I had taken courses with Ann Monius here that had taught me that Hinduism was largely a colonial construct to which one could not be converted. And what I learned in this process was where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> and some priests were paid, and I was converted, and there's now a certificate with my face on it that says I've renounced my religion of Christianity and taken up the religion of Arya, and it's a fascinating document. But um, what I actually, well, two things I'll say about it. Um, the first is, in the actual conversion process, there were a series of gestures that I did, and I didn't know what they were at the time, and I was repeating Sanskrit words. And afterward, I, I learned that what I was doing was consecrating different parts of my body to the divine. Um, and, you know, I kind of said, well, if I'd known that was what was on offer, you know, I could have had my own response to that. So I think part of what that points to and that has ended up being a huge part of my work with Casper, to both of our surprise, is relationships to elders as wisdom keepers mm -hmm. and the possibilities that are opened um, when, those, when those lineages stay intact, as, even if they run across what might have been the previous boundaries to hold them, right? Um, someone who could have shared with me some, some more about the meaning behind the rituals I was engaging with, even if I would not maybe in some other context be a recipient of that particular set of wisdom, right? And so there's a real opportunity to creatively unlock the ways that we're sharing and transmitting what we've learned about meaning making through the centuries and across different uh, geographies and times. So that's one piece is, is um, a real hope in the, uh, in the kind of eldering relationships. And then the second piece is just that, you know, I was not Christian before and I'm not Hindu now by many standards, but I did that because I love my husband and I cared about his family, right? And there's something um, that seems to be awfully compelling to us still in the midst of all of this change um, about our, our connection uh, to others and, and those kinds of bonds of love that um, sure haven't gone anywhere. So I think in, in the midst of that, we will be called to creativity to, to move forward, whatever that looks like. <laughs> well, friends, thank you so much for being with us. Um, it, can I just have a, a show of hands? Anyone who knows where the CSWR is and is planning to go? 
Okay, we have some hands up. Excellent. These are the people to follow if you would like to join the Drinks and Nibbles. It is just across the road in a rather stunningly 1950s, 60s building. Uh, the entrance is to the side through a little gate. A huge thanks to Angie Thurston, Nancy Allen, Anna Sun, and Chris White. I'm so, so grateful.